gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And this week we have a special guest. This is our first time having a guest since Rachel has joined the podcast. And we're actually having her pastor on, so that's especially exciting. We have Todd Bordeaux from Cornerstone Orthodox Presbyterian Church down in Houston. And he has done some writing on divorce, and it's a topic we get so many questions about. I mean, I think, especially in our circles, when you have some of the Reformed Baptists that hold to a permanence view, and then there's all kinds of questions about divorce. And specifically, you focused on Matthew 5, right, Todd? So, I guess just for starters, how did you come to write on the topic of divorce in Matthew 5. Well, thank you both for having me. Uh, it really came about that I was um, obtaining my doctorate from RTS in Orlando. And when it was time for my dissertation, I was thinking about writing a theological paper on Matthew 5, specifically the antithesis, the antitheses of Matthew 5. But then when we got into the room and we were told by our advisors of what the school wanted, they wanted each of our papers to solve a problem for the church. And so more than simply a theological interpretation, but some help in a practical way. So looking at the different antithesis, I came up with, well, divorce is probably the one there are the most questions. And getting it wrong can actually lead to the most serious consequences. And so I decided to focus on that. Now, with that was my experience as a pastor dealing with failing marriages. And so often, looking back, the marriages that had failed were not from the classic two exceptions that, you, that are known from the scripture, you know, abandonment or adultery. Most of them, and, and most of them were men 
husbands to their wives, but a few were the other way around. The majority was just from cruelty and a, a hard heart by one of the spouses where the other spouse simply couldn't take it anymore. And so looking back at that and as I preached through Matthew 5 and I was learning and studying the the way Jesus uses these six antitheses, I realized that people don't usually put the divorce exception there in Matthew 5 in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And when they do, it comes up with some different interpretations than what people think. And it really does help when you understand it, uh, the innocent party in a divorce that's suffering from the cruelty of a partner. And so putting those together, I wrote the dissertation. And when my advisors, one of them was Justin Holcomb. I don't know if you've heard mm -hmm. of him, but I have. he works a lot. Okay, he works a lot with abused women around the world. And they, when they read it, they said, y you should publish this. And so I sort of self-published it through an organization. And, um, and, and, you know, I get a lot of letters over the years of how it's helped people. So that's how it came about of why I wrote on divorce. Well, I have to say I'm really thankful that you did. Uh, like Colleen says, we've had lots of questions through Theology Gals. I get a lot of questions uh, through the writing that I've done over the years. And uh, and even in in my own writing, in my book, I did try to address, and I used your book as a resource. Um, within the church, there seem to be some, you know, two or three pretty common, consistent views on divorce. Would you talk a little bit about what those views are and what you see as the advantages or disadvantages of those approaches? Sure. Uh, the first view we can look at, it's the one you just mentioned. It's the permanence view. And that's the view that marriage is a one-flesh union that is permanent until death, and there are no exceptions. And people may wonder, what do you do with the exceptions, both in 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 5 and repeated in Matthew 19? Well, this view believes that the exception clause that speaks of sexual immorality, which is porneia in the Greek, only concerns a very limited meaning of um, porneia. And that is when two who are betrothed to each other, they're engaged, commit fornication. And therefore, it's saying that that engagement can be annulled. And it also says something about remarriage that there's no remarriage allowed normally while the other spouse is alive, even after a, a divorce, in any situation. But as far as the marriage, even if it's uh, abandonment or abuse or adultery, they may tell you for abuse you need to you know, get out of the house for a while. But it's never lawful, it's never Christian to initiate a divorce under any circumstance. And so that's called the permanence view. Uh, Vody Bauckham is probably most well-known for that. John Piper teaches that also. Uh, the, the next view would be what we might call the narrow two-clause or narrow two-exception view. That view takes the pornea as adultery narrowly and not sex, sexual immorality sort of broadly. And so this view says there are only two exceptions. One of them is the adultery mentioned in Matthew 5. And then the other one is 
1 Corinthians 7, abandonment by an unbeliever. All else that you are to remain married, even if you have to separate for safety or something like that, uh, there is no exception for filing for divorce beyond these two sins that are committed. So that is the narrow two-clause view. The broad two-clause view looks at these two situations and has a very broad application of it. For example, porneia is not the word for adultery. There is a Greek word for adultery not used there. And some pastors and some people say any type of sexual immorality, whether it's porn addiction, an online relationship with a, a another person that's sexual in nature but maybe has not been consummated. Uh, it's sort of very broad sexual immorality. And then desertion is taken very broadly. So you can desert someone geographically or you can desert your responsibilities. For example, if a husband never works and provides for the wife, he's deserting his responsibilities. By physically abusing her, he's deserting his responsibilities. And so that view takes those two phrases and simply applies them very broadly beyond sort of traditionally what we think about sexual immorality. And then there's my view, which is not only my view, but as I show in the book, many other views. Others have this view, and we'll go over that in a moment. And then I think the last view is not so uncommon in broad evangelicalism, which is the what I would call the no exegesis view. <laughs> sort of whatever makes you happy, easy divorce, no-fault divorce, not even taking the Word of God seriously in those passages. And according to surveys, that's not an uncommon view among those who identify as evangelicals. That they're not even aware of the exegesis of these two passages. So, the strengths and, we strengths and weaknesses... <clears throat> Excuse me. The strength of the permanence view would be it's easy. I mean, there are definitely no gray areas when it comes to the permanence view. You simply are never allowed to initiate a divorce under any circumstance. And so, in essence, there's, I don't want to say no thought, but very little uh, subjective or gray. And so, if that's what you like, that would be something you might be drawn to. Now, the weaknesses, I think, are fairly ob obvious, and I talk about them more in the book, but they really ignore the exceptions, and they don't interpret them correctly. Uh, especially to suggest that porneia in Matthew 5 only means to be unfaithful and betrothal, and they use Joseph and Mary as an example. That's sort of maybe one one-hundredth of how that word is used in the Greek world. Porneia almost always meant sexual immorality uh, of any kind, but usually actual sex. Not necessarily porn or things like that, but engaging in sexual immorality of any type. That's how the word is broadly used. There would be no way for anyone to read that and take from that this tiny range of meaning which it's only used a few times in the ancient world to mean unfaithfulness only when you're engaged. It would actually mean, you know, 1 Corinthians 6 says, fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is pornoi or uh, 
you know, porneia, the same word, you would actually have to say that that only means those who are engaged and commit fornication um, with someone else cannot enter the kingdom of God. You couldn't even commit that sin unless you were engaged. And I think very few commentators have ever taken First Corinthians 6 that way. Uh, the permanence view also ignores church history. Almost normally throughout church history, adultery has been an exception. Uh, even the narrow view, and some even the broad view. And then finally, the danger of the permanence view it's, is that it is dangerous. That if a spouse is being abused, uh, to or in any way she's, you know, the husband or the wife is uh, sleeping with another person, to advise them that they have to stay in that situation, especially when there's no true repentance, it's very dangerous for that person. And I've dealt with a number of women who have been suicidal because they've been forced to stay in a relationship that is, on the emotional level, killing them. And so they began to think, knowing that there's no out in this view. In their minds, if they want to remain a faithful Christian, they have to endure this abuse for life. It puts them in a very dangerous situation. So the narrow two-clause view, and you can stop me with any questions or comments, by the way. I was just going to add that you know one of the things that I've heard from a, a guy who was talking about the permanence view, and he made the joking comment, that you know, divorce never murder. Yes, or murder. Yes, divorce never. And you know, the audience laughs, but it it really is a life or death for some people, and it's not funny. Yes, and I have known some women who have taken their life in that situation. So let's look at the narrow two clause view again. The strength would be it's clear. There's little gray area when there are only two sins that can be committed that would justify filing for divorce. Uh, adultery or fornication, excuse me, adultery or abandonment by an unbeliever. The weaknesses, of course, is it opens up all kinds of questions that aren't covered in the New Testament. What about abuse? What about physical abuse? Are we sure that the wife has to stay if her husband is hitting her? Uh, what about if your husband or your wife's a heroin addict? What about if a believer abandons you? First uh, Corinthians 7 only deals with unbelievers. Nothing is mentioned about a believer. And so there are all kinds of questions that a strict or narrow two-sin view leaves open that really doesn't answer. Also, the narrow, do, the narrow view does not do justice to the context of Matthew 5, as we'll look at in a moment. And it also doesn't recognize that throughout most of church history, Consistent cruelty has been a reason. Even those who have held to a narrow view generally have not limited it only to those two sins in unique situations. And so you have the same type of danger. Unless those exact two sins are being committed, a person suffering feels hopeless and that there's no way out of this. And that can lead, of course, to suicide. Now, the third view, the broad two-clause view, the strengths are uh, porneia is a broad, it has a broad uses in, use in ancient Greek. And so, to not say, to say it's not only adultery would, would be true to the way the word is used. 
and, and so it is an accurate response. Uh, moikos is the um, is the Greek word for adultery, but it's pur- purposely not used here in Matthew five. And so the broad view does allow for other contingencies. Once you define abandonment very broadly, that would then would you know assume also abuse and cruelty and things like that. So the strength also it assumes Jesus is not covering every case in a legal sense, but is simply being very broad. And we we find the broad view in church history, as I said. The weakness is is it's not a very accurate exegetical position. And I mean by that, when you read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is very specific that he's speaking of an unbeliever who abandons a Christian. And so, in our in the way we use language, you may say there are other ways to abandon a spouse, but that's not really Paul's point. So you really wouldn't find that. You can't stretch a word beyond the meaning of the author when the author wouldn't even be thinking of those other type of things when he's dealing with a very real situation that happened in Corinth. And so, you know, the same thing with sexual immorality. It can become so broad that it's beyond the way that word was understood in the ancient world, which was actual sex um, outside of marriage. So it can become so gray if, if, if you're looking at those passages that you're not sure that those passages have any real meaning. So, And then obviously the weakness of the modern view is self-evident. We don't need to go there. So that in a nutshell is, I believe, the strength and weaknesses of those view before we get to the view I'm proposing. You know, Todd, as you're talking, I'm almost, well, no, I am emotional because I remember a friend telling me that she was suicidal when her husband was cruel to her. And I I think about how, sorry, I'm emotional, and this friend is with the Lord now um, because of cancer. But I think about how ignorant I was in comforting her. But you can imagine having a popular uh, women's podcast that I'm contacted by many women, as Rachel is with her book and her writing and her blog, that are in these very abusive and cruel situations. I remember when Theology Gals first started, and I was so not equipped to deal with this situation. And a woman contacted me and said, my husband beat me last night. I've got a black eye. I have a fat lip. He beat me in front of my young child. And my pastor says that um, that my husband is repentant, and so I must return. And yet I'm scared. Um, the police were not called in this situation. And anyway, I want to know just from your experience and the things that you have heard, but what happens when a spouse goes to the pastor with concerns about grievous sins in the marriage and they hold to one of these, these different views that you've mentioned? I'll give you a real-life example without obviously naming names. And early on in my ministry, the wife of one of our elders had a good friend in another church that held to a very strict view. And her husband, who was an officer in that church, 
and they would claim to be reformed in that church. He was very cruel to her all their marriage and actually forced her to do some very untold things, even in a sexual way. And um, she finally, she went to that church, and of course the church did their own counseling. And the man admitted as much as he could and then quote-unquote repented. And so after taking them through marriage counseling, they said everything should be fine. They went back home and you know, the spouse always knows if the heart has changed or not. Nobody else knows like the spouse. They live with the person. They know the person. But oftentimes, pastors think they know more than the spouse. That's one of the problems. You know, we've known these people for a few years, only on Sundays. And the spouse knows the person. And so often, when they come with these strict views, what what the goal of the pastor unfortunately becomes is to save the marriage in any way possible, which often makes them just go through certain motions and outward changes, but doesn't change the heart, and then puts the victim back in that situation again, especially if they haven't committed those two sins, they haven't abandoned and they haven't committed adultery, then the innocent party is sort of trapped that the guilty party can simply say, yes, I've changed, I've worked on it. And then the, the pastor thinks it's a success because they're still together. But things are actually just getting worse at home. So that's what was going on in this situation. And she was very desperate. She was suicidal. And so the wife of the elder said, why don't you talk to my pastor? So when I met her, she looked like she was about to end her life. I mean, there was no color in her face. Life had been drained out of her. Very soft-spoken. You know, difficult to even look up. She described her marriage to me and she said, what would you do? And I said, well, you're a member of the uh, of another church, not mine, so I'll phrase it this way. If you were a member of my church, I'd say, you need to get out of there. Get out of that home. He's killing you. And you're, you're five... You know, you're five minutes away from taking your life. You, I can tell you've been thinking about it. She said, yes. said, you need to protect yourself and get away from him, whatever it takes. Well, she did that, and she moved out of the house. She didn't file for divorce right away, but she moved out of the house. And that session, those elders came at me and tried to get me disbarred from the ministry. Well, it's interesting that they excommunicated the wife within two weeks. They didn't try to interview her. They didn't try to reclaim her. They excommunicated her. And she ended up joining our church. And uh, I think she would have taken her life if she would have simply um, continued with that type of counseling, which was only changing things on the outside, but not really dealing with true repentance and not protecting her when she needed to be protected. So that's a very common scenario I've seen happen a lot in conservative circles. When people hold to a very strict view, I find when they're a little more broad and open, especially to cruelty, once divorce is on the table in counseling, it does force the one who's cruel uh, to consider the ramifications of their sin more because they know they're not going to be able to get away with this for long.
And so I find it's very dangerous to, from the start, take divorce off the table when there's a consistent cruelty. And we'll talk about what that word cruelty means in a moment, but in general, that's what I've seen with these approaches. Well, I can say for myself that I have heard very similar stories, very similar accounts from uh, mostly women, but from women all over the country in various different churches and backgrounds. Um, it's it's almost like it's being read from the same playbook, that it happens again and again. And um, to, you know, that's why we wanted to have you on to talk about this. So given these other approaches and, and given your own study of Matthew 5, what are some ways that your views changed as you studied Matthew 5 and has, as you approached the issue of divorce? Well, like I said, I first noticed when I was preaching through Matthew 5 and dealing with um, the the way new covenant ethics are explained, and that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's God's word for his new covenant people who will be filled with the Holy Spirit and in Matthew 5, these six antitheses, the Lord is comparing and contrasting the ethics of Israel and under the old covenant law with the ethics of his new covenant people. And we see that it's actually a heightened ethic uh, from the old covenant law because we are those who filled with the Spirit in the very presence of God in heaven. And so the outward types are gone, the civil laws of Israel that only punish certain outward sins. Those do not apply anymore, where in the New Covenant the types have disappeared, and now we're in the reality of the kingdom. And so Jesus is contrasting the ethics of the old with the ethics of the new. And the way he does that is using hyperbole. Now, commentators and exegetes have always recognized this um, use of hyperbole throughout Matthew 5. But for some reason, they stop when we come to the divorce passage. For example, if you look at a few of them before that, in the Old Testament, um, the, it only enforced against murder, not against hatred. You could be an Israelite in good standing in the community and yet have complete hatred for your brother. The only thing that was enforced was murder. But Jesus says, in my kingdom... Now that the eternal kingdom has come, the kingdom of heaven, you can't get away with that. So if you have hatred for your brother in your heart, that you will be guilty enough to go to hell, even if outwardly you do not commit murder. And of course, the examples he gives are calling a brother a fool. And so the hyperbole here would be where Jesus says, if you have offended your brother or if he has an offense against you, leave your animal at the altar and go reconcile first. Well, that's hyperbolic language. There is really no place to come to the temple and leave an animal, then go find your brother in the city you came from. Reconcile, come back and expect the animal to still be there, and then offer it. That was obviously figurative language to show how important it is uh, to love your brother. And so, again, with adultery in the next one, the Old Covenant did not legislate against lust, only adultery. So you could be a person consumed with lust and yet be in good standing in Israel. Jesus says, now, if you look on a woman with lust, 
you are committing adultery for, before God, and you will not be a member of my kingdom. And so what's the hyperbole to show this? Well, an obvious right. Well, if your right eye causes you to sin, what does it say? Pluck your eye out. I hope no one has taken that literally. Or chop your hand off. And so the idea is, in the new covenant, now that the Holy Spirit has come and filled my people, they will actually choose suffering over being devoured by lust. That's how much God works in the heart, not just outwardly through the law, you know, over the morals of the people in the land. And then finally, the third example is vows. In the Old Covenant, Israel, the Israelites were put under a system of vows to guarantee they speak the truth. And the reason they were put under the system is, in general, they weren't a very honest people. And so there needed to be these vows that you promised that such and such would happen to you. May God kill me if I'm telling a lie. Jesus says, in my kingdom, you don't even need to say vows. Because the Holy Spirit changes you from the heart, well, you'll be a truthful people. And so, Jesus says, any taking of a vow is then sin. Now, of course, again, it's hyperbole. We make marriage vows. Uh, we take membership vows to a church. We, we vow to tell the truth in a court. We have never taken that in a literal sense, that you're never allowed to make a vow. But we understand he's using hyperbole to show the glory of the new covenant. And so hyperbole is the interpretive guide in all these statements. And yet when we get to the next one on divorce, we tend to throw that interpretive guide out and assume all of a sudden Jesus is speaking like a lawyer explaining literal case law. And so if you, if you remember the interpretive guide that we've already used, you see that he's using hyperbole in verses 31 and 32. And so Jesus said, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's from Deuteronomy 24 uh, in the Law of Moses. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Now right away you know that that's hyperbole. You cannot force someone to commit adultery. Adultery is a willful, willful act. So again, we're using hyperbole. And then anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so remember, in, in Israel, there was easy divorce. Deuteronomy 24 said, if, if you find anything untold in a woman, in a wife, you are to write a certificate of divorce. Now, of course, Jesus explains this later on. Moses allowed this because of hardness of heart. And so women were with cruel husbands. And Moses allowed to protect the woman an easy way to get out of that marriage. That was never God's ideal, but it was because so many of the men were cruel and hard of heart. And so Jesus is saying in the New Covenant, you do not need that type of law anymore because my people will be filled with Christ's love that they will be able to remain married and love one another. So verse 32 becomes a warning to the man, just like earlier, who uses the law to continue to sin and thinks he can get away with it. Because in Old Testament Israel, you could get away with it according to the law itself, at least what was enforced, what was punished. 
And so verse 32 is saying, using hyperbole, that if you divorce your wife easily like you did in the Old Covenant, except for sexual immorality, and we'll get to that in a moment, she's committing adultery. Now the hyperbole is that you are still in God's eyes responsible for her. So in that sense, it would be like she has two husbands if she gets remarried. She's not literally guilty of adultery. That's not the point. The point is to warn the husband who easily divorces her and uses the Old Testament law as a justification that in God's eyes, you're still married. You're still responsible. And now you've made her have two husbands. And then sexual immorality again, becomes a part of the hyperbole. Sexual immorality sort of represents the breaking of the marriage vow, something so serious that you've broken your promise to love and care for her, but you're sinning against her in such a way. And so it's not laying out sort of a, a legal case for the only exception for adult, uh, for uh, divorce is you know, fornication. It's simply using that like it's used the other sins in the rest of these other examples in the rest of these um, antitheses. And so even the second part, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's the same idea, that she ends up having two husbands or you end up having two wives now because you thought you easily put her away, but in God's eyes, you're still responsible. And so, again, the point is, is that marriage, the marriage covenant can be broken by serious sin and hardness of heart. But Jesus is saying, if you're the one who has been the one hardness of heart, you won't get away with it just because they got away with it in Old Testament Israel. And so the Bible here is not giving any type of a, an exact legal prescription on when someone can divorce. Ideally, marriage is for life. And the point is, professing Christians who are true Christians, there would be no reason to divorce because you've been given God's love in your hearts and you wouldn't have hard hearts. You would have soft hearts and your marriage would last. And so that, if you understand it the way all the rest of the antitheses are understood, then you don't have to use it as some case law that deals with every tipple, every situation of when someone can divorce. You know, Todd, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that last point because I'm somebody who's been married for 24 years and I've seen the blessing of marriage. And of course, we're focusing on divorce right now. Um, but I don't want single women to think, oh, this is such a horrible thing. There's so many examples of good marriages blessed by the Lord. And um, I've seen them. My grandparents married almost 70 years. And my parents now married 47 years. And myself married almost 25 years. But, you know, as you're talking, so many things going through my mind. And I was thinking back to... Um, a conversation I had with my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law someone I've had on the podcast, Ted Rosenblatt, and he's a Lutheran. And he found some old sermons by Martin Luther. And they're not something I've been able to find online anywhere. But Martin Luther gave some different um, 
reasons that he thought were acceptable for divorce. And this was surprising to me because I hadn't thought really much about church history. But I'm, I'm really wondering, what, how did church history view this? The early church fathers, the reformers, what are some things that you found in regards to church history? Before I answer that, let me just say 34 years for me and I know we're, I've heard lately we're not allowed to say our husband, our wife is our best friend, but <laughs> my wife's definitely my best friend. <laughs> Mine, my husband's <laughs> my best friend too. So, so we've been very blessed. And so, yeah, it's really interesting how many views have been um, used throughout history that there's never been sort of one general view that has been accepted. When I studied the early church history, they tended to take, as far as their exegesis, the narrow two-exception view that the sexual immorality clause really only means adultery. The problem is, is when you read the quotes, the, device, the advice tends to be different for the men versus the women. So, for example, many of the quotes, if the wife is cheating, the husband is advised to put her away and to divorce her. If the husband is cheating, the wife is often advised to stay with him and give him more chances. And so there definitely seemed to be a bias uh, for the men, not too surprising when we think of that culture, against the women. And that really is the first few hundred years. Let me just read one example. The Canons of Basil, which were composed in Egypt. Very early on, it says, If a husband commits adultery, the, the wife must stay with him. If the wife commits adultery, there can be a divorce. If the husband is lewd with another woman, it is treated as fornication, but not adultery. If the wife is lewd with another man, she can be divorced. So, I, I guess the way to say it is, they held to a certain view, but they didn't apply it evenly to the husbands and wives in general. Now, as we move on to the 4th century, it, marriage began to be seen as a sacrament. And really, it's Augustine who teaches on this the most. And, and the church held to Augustine's view all throughout the Middle Ages. But as we get to the 4th century, even adultery was not even an exception for divorce. And so Augustine taught that marriage is a sacrament. And if, Christ, and if, it, if marriage pictures Christ's union with his church, well, that cannot uh, be annulled. There cannot be a divorce. And so if it's going to picture it, then marriages must last uh, for a lifetime. Now, it's interesting, Augustine, or Augustine, later on in his life, he wrote some retractions to his earlier views. And he actually wrote in, in, in some places that apostasy of a partner would be a reason. So if he walked away from the Lord, the Christian spouse actually could divorce. And so he sort of softened that view. In the Middle Ages, they held the view that marriage was a sacrament. And so for marriage to picture the relationship with Christ and his church, there could not be a, a divorce. But when they wrote all their canon laws on the application of, of their laws, they ended up giving all kinds of neat little ways to get out of a marriage. You could actually live completely separate lives and officially on the books stay married. And then it was during the Middle Ages where we came up with, the church came up with what's called ecclesiastical divorce, 
which means the church is the one that approved divorce. Unfortunately, the Protestant church sort of still has borrowed from that and assumed that prerogative, that it's the church that blesses or not allows a divorce, when that's really not in the Bible at all. And it wasn't even true in the Old Testament Israel. Um, the rabbis weren't the ones to decide. It was always, and usually the husband, but it was always of the spouse. But anyway, in the Middle Ages, the church decided who could divorce. Now, with Martin Luther, as you said, he began to teach that marriage is no longer a sacrament like the Middle Ages uh, taught. and But he did teach the narrow two-exception view. But there were times, as you just mentioned, where he was not exhaustive in that application. For example, if a partner refused conjugal rights, he would say, you're allowed to divorce. If he refused to live with a marriage partner, or, and I'm going to quote from him, if a marriage partner is rude, brutal, and unbearable. And that's going to be our definition of cruelty. And then he also said that it's not really the church's responsibility to uh, allow divorces or legally decide. That's really for the civil government to decide that marriage and divorce are approved by the state, not the church. Now that leads us to the English Puritans who generally held to the narrow two view and the Westminster Confession of of Faith gives adultery and abandonment as the two exceptions for divorce. Except when we look at some of the Puritans, they did hold to other reasons. They they weren't so narrow. For example, William Perkins taught that if a husband or wife is consistently um, dealing with malicious dealings or intolerable conditions for the spouse, where there is either a loss, potential loss of life or breach of conscience if both parties remain together. And under such intolerable conditions, a Christian could divorce his or her partner. And then William Gouge, who actually was one of them who signed the Westminster Confession of Faith, included apostasy or a spouse living in obstinate sin as a reason for divorce. So even though they generally interpreted those passages as two exceptions, they did not limit divorce to those two exceptions. The American colonial period, there were very few exceptions allowed. Uh, There were very few divorces, but one of the reasons women had no rights, either to the children or to any money, and so women would face the loss of children or poverty. And so even women who were being abused tended to stay with their husbands because of the laws. It's interesting when the colonial period loosened divorce laws, it didn't really change the amount of divorces that were recorded. And then we come to the modern period. In the 1900s, with the return of fundamentalism, sort of in a reaction against the liberalizing in in culture in the church, they tended to go to the permanence view a little bit. And so today, all those views are around, like we said at the beginning. You can find all of them in the church. Thank you for the, the history of that. It's very interesting to hear um, kind of the variations, uh, different approaches that were taken over time. And uh, I'm sure a lot of it was connected to views of men and women in the history as well. But one of the things that we hear a lot as we discuss 
uh, I'm sure Colleen's heard it too, when we discuss divorce and marriage, people will say, but you know, doesn't the Bible say God hates divorce? Yeah, that's. Uh, we don't have the time I would like to actually get into the Hebrew of that, but that translation is very questionable. Matter of fact, both your English Standard Version and your NIV do not have God as the one who's saying that. And again, that's a difficult question. The problem in Matthew, two, excuse me, Malachi two, is men were divorcing their wives and marrying foreign women. You see that from verse eleven on, and so. It's the Hebrew men who were saying, I hate divorce. It's probably a better translation. And yet, as hypocrites, they were the one causing divorce. And so the way the English standard translated it, translate that is, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. In the NIV, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. And so there's this statement, and then it says, says the Lord, the God of Israel. It doesn't really say, I hate divorce in the Hebrew. But even if you should translate it that way, like the earlier translations do, uh, and Jay Adams brought this out in his book on divorce, that God declares divorce on Israel. And Hosea actually uses that phrase. So even God divorces at times when it's necessary. But so it it doesn't it doesn't exclude any divorce ever. But really, the context is God is hating divorce because these men are putting their wives away. So you have to take the whole chapter in context. Um, but I don't think you can use that to say divorce is never allowed because here in Malachi two in this situation, God is uh, protesting against it. No, Todd, um, just this very morning, I had somebody message me regarding what the Westminster standards say about divorce. And we hear a lot about adultery and abandonment. And even the Westminster standards address those specifically. But what about abuse? Well, you know, with the view that I've been suggesting, and really, though the men like William Gouge and Perkins didn't on an exegetical level come to these convictions the way I did, in application they ended up with the same. And that is, is in any type of intolerable, intolerable condition of malicious cruelty, that would be a reason for, for divorce. And so, again, when we say cruelty, we don't mean You've been cruel in one sharp remark, or you had a difficult day and you said something you regret, or you know, you're not the most warm person in the world. We're not talking about things like that. We're talking about what the Bible describes as a hard heart. That deep down, the husband hates his wife, or the wife hates her husband. And that can come out in all kinds of ways. And that cold, hard hearted cruelty begins to wear someone down, and they can only take so much of it. And that's really what they were dealing with, and, and that is an acceptable, acceptable reason for divorce. And so that is a breaking of the marriage vow. You're breaking the marriage covenant. You vowed to love, and you hate. And so when we say cruelty, 
we meet a complete a complete disregard for the well-being and soul of another that you're only using them and another thing clean is we used to think that we can separate physical abuse from psychological abuse and so people used to say well i didn't actually ever hurt her i didn't put my hand on her but we're finding out more that you can't separate them so easily anymore because the body begins to wear down under stress that when that stress is constant home is supposed to be a place of peace from the stress of the world and when your home is always one of hatred and cruelty and stress the body breaks down most of the people I've dealt with in failing marriages where one partner one partner has been cruel the other partner has had a lot of physical problems and and that was even true I spoke to a man recently who's in this situation very cruel wife and actually tried to hurt him and I asked him are there physical manifestations in his life he says he has all kinds of physical problems from the stress so to be able to claim that well he's not hurting her physically we really can't do that anymore because and and obviously if that person is thinking of suicide well that's physical so you are threatening them physically when you're so cruel to a person where you're breaking them down as human beings where they don't want to live anymore that is a physical threat and so yes consistent cruelty would be a reason for divorce. Thank you for answering that. That really is a, a question that we hear a lot. Um, you, you talked at the beginning about kind of the the typical ways that advice would go if a woman, or I'm using a woman, but a spouse goes to their church with uh, concerns about grievous sins in their marriage. But how does a pastor's view of divorce affect how they counsel or how they approach a troubled marriage? Well, let me sort of give my view, because every pastor will deal with differently. Knowing divorce is always the result of sin. At some level, at at least one of the parties, I would never counsel anyone to get a divorce. There's a difference in allowing something and then counseling something. You know, maybe I would if there was definite physical danger, but um, I would never tell someone, go get a divorce. But I would always leave that to the conscience of the person suffering in a cruel marriage. Now, obviously, if it's not even cruelty, if it's sinful reasons they want a divorce, I would say the opposite, that that's the vow you need to keep, that you know the other partner has not broken his marriage vows. He just has weaknesses that you're, you're not to abandon him for that or her. But in, in the kind of cases we've been talking about that that we deal with a lot, of the type of hard-hearted cruelty, you know, we would once we understand that, we would seek the repentance of the cruel party. I, I'm always careful to remind young pastors that you are not professional marriage counselors. You deal with the heart, and you deal with the heart that needs repentance. And so when you see someone being cruel, it's a hard issue. It's not an issue of skills. And so you need to go after the heart. And typically, if a person is in the church and their heart's hard, their heart is hard to the gospel also. And so it tends not to 
end well when you confront a person who's hard, in his heart of heart. Now, they can be very manipulative, and they can act like they're repentant, repenting, but over time, you can see whether it's genuine or not. So these things take time. I always deal with the heart once I really understand and ask a lot of questions over time. And again, I don't take divorce off the table. I will say to the cruel person, if you don't truly repent and change your heart and ask the Lord to give you a new heart, you may lose this marriage. And that usually shocks them because they come from traditions that assumed you would never say that. Um, she can't leave me. I haven't done the two sins. But I don't do that, and I don't think pastors should. I would remind them of the serious consequences of their sin. Now again, if you really understand the book of Hebrews, you know that when a person hardens their heart over time against the gospel, they come to a place beyond return. So in my experience, somebody who's been cruel in marriage who claims to know Christ has already hardened their hearts to the point of no return. So it's very rare. The only time there's been real troubled marriages that are saved, I find that both parties were actual Christians who just had issues they needed to work on. But for the most part, with this type of cruelty spoken of in the Middle Ages and or in um, Engl among the English Puritans, I haven't seen anything but a more hardening of the heart. And that it puts the wife or the husband more in danger once they become angry that you've confronted them. So you have to think about the church discipline process. But, you know, for the other party... If they need to protect themselves, either physically or even emotionally or psychologically, that before God, they do what they think they have to do. I'm not their conscience. It's not for me to condemn them. And so I, I just try to be supportive to the person who's suffering. That's a, that's a very brief summary of a very long process, by the way. So. Everything that you're saying, I'm thinking so much of so many gals that contact me and you're a pastor and one thing in we have a group of over 5,500 women so you can imagine you know a, a small percentage of those women are the women that you're talking about right now and I we we often say okay you need to seek pastoral counsel and Sometimes that pastoral counsel isn't great. We we hope it is, but it isn't always great. But I'm wondering what you say to someone in an abusive marriage that's being treated, um, that's dealing with the cruelty. Yeah, just what I said. If I've confronted the spouse and there's no genuine repentance with a change in heart. And again, the wife always knows, so I trust her. And all I have to do is ask her, has he really changed? Has his heart changed? Not just certain actions to protect himself, but has his heart changed? If she says no and she's scared and, and about to end it, again, I don't ever encourage divorce. I just, if she asks me, I'll say, before God, you need to make a decision. And it's your conscience before God. You do what you need to do. If you need to separate for a time and you need to protect yourself financially, obviously, and if kids are involved, 
I, I always recommend if they're at the edge with getting divorced, you need to get some advice, legal advice first. I'm not a lawyer. This, you, you know, don't make a move that's going to hurt your children or you. But as a pastor, I, you know, I get out of the legal advice. I don't ever tell her to get a divorce, but I let the abused woman know that we as a church are not going to condemn her, condemn her for protecting herself. We're not going to come after her. We hope to save the marriage, but more important, we want to protect the innocent party. And so, yeah, it's complicated. It's situation to situation, but ultimately, a Christian needs to make their own decision in these situations before the Lord, and we cannot violate the conscience and make it for her. Connected with that, if if there were a case that of a woman or a man that comes to you and they're worried about their physical safety, there's something dangerous about what's going on, would you also recommend that they get the, um, uh, not just legal help, but get involved with the authorities to, to take care of the situation? Oh, yes, always. Any type of physical violence that has ever happened or you think it's about to happen, definitely get legal help right away. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because in my mind that's a given, but since it's not always asked, I may be assuming, but definitely the church needs to step back whenever there's a law broken or about to be broken and bring in the authorities right away, not only to protect the woman, but also to protect the church and denomination. That's that's secondary, but still, um, in every case we would do that, yes. And, and especially also, not just the wife, or in some cases I've seen the husband, but the children, and then their safety is paramount. Thank you for saying that. Um, you, we have actually, through the people that I've talked to, through situations that I've known, and through um, you know research that I've done in this area, a lot of churches try to handle these things in-house, and it seems to be a very mm. dangerous way to approach uh, dangerous uh, – sorry, excuse me – seems to be a very dangerous way to approach – um, violence in the home. Yeah, it's very dumb and it's very arrogant for a session or leaders of a church to think that they can deal with every type of psychological or legal situation simply because they're elders. You need to contact the authorities in all these situations. Todd, I'm so glad you said that because that's been something that um, I've been faced with. I when certain situations came my way, I went to uh, a pastor and my my own mom, um, who was a mandated reporter, who is a mandated reporter. And my mom, my pastor, actually, when I had a situation where I suspected abuse, said, Colleen, it's not our job to investigate it's our job to report when we suspect. And that that really stuck with me. And I'm so glad a great OPC pastor said that to me because that really kind of changed how I, even though he, I'm not a mandated reporter, he said, I'm a mandated reporter. We report right now because we suspect. And um, that's something that I think about a lot. And I even got counsel in regards to running the Theology Gals group. And pastor said to me, why don't you hold to the same standards as a mandated reporter? 
and I have reported. I've had I've reported when I thought a woman was in danger and when I knew children were in danger. But one of the questions that comes up a lot and um, a lot is regarding remarriage after divorce. Could you speak to that? Uh, very briefly, simply because it's beyond. I didn't really get into the issue of remarriage in my paper. I, I would just say the innocent party um, who is divorced, um, but the other person, and let me just say, I've sort of um, hinted at this, but the person who breaks the marriage covenant is not necessarily the person who files for divorce. And so the innocent party is the one who did not break the marriage covenant, but the other one did with his sin. And so sometimes filing for divorce is just legally recognizing what the other person actually did. So the point would be, be if you're the innocent party, yes, you can get remarried. Um, if you're the guilty party, you're still responsible for that woman as long as she's unmarried. And you should not be trying to uh, marry someone else. You should be trying to repent and trying to win her back. Those are general truths. It gets complicated in the details, but I'll leave it at that. Thank you. That's actually very helpful. Um, you, know, you mentioned at the very beginning in talking about the different views on uh, marriage and divorce within the church, that there is a, a subset of evangelicals, even a large group of evangelicals, who have a, I just want to be happy kind of view of marriage. And, you know, God just wants me to ha be happy so it doesn't, I can get divorced and marry someone else. And, you know, the church doesn't have anything to say in this. You know, you, you briefly passed over it because it's not really the focus of what we're talking about. But how would you say, or how would you explain your view of of divorce as different from the I just want to be happy view? Well, like I said before, the new covenant reality that Jesus explains in the Sermon on the Mount is a self-sacrificing love for others. And so that's assumed in any genuine Christian. So anyone who simply wants to be divorced because, oh, they want to be happier, they want to find somebody... Um, that would show me that they may not be a Christian. And so I would be approaching that as a very serious sin, not just that sin, but something about your heart where Christ's love is sacrificial. It's not self-serving. It's not giving up quickly on your vows because you want something better. And so I would really be questioning their understanding of the gospel if, they've really, if they ever really believe the gospel and definitely confronting them for that type of thinking. So that wouldn't fit at all into my view of the Sermon on the Mount, or Christianity in general. Thank you very much. That really did answer uh, my questions. Uh, I guess, I know Colleen will will tie us up here at the end, but um, or finish us off here. I, I just wanted to ask if there's anything else that we haven't addressed that you might want to say. I don't think so. I'm looking over the notes I jotted down, and I actually said everything I jotted down. That's pretty rare in a podcast. So, <laughs> I do have a couple of follow-up questions. Uh, the gal that contacted me just this morning talked about the Westminster Standards on divorce. And when you were talking earlier uh, about the different views, 
do you think that the Westminster standards fall into the view that only sees uh, adultery and abandonment as an acceptable view for divorce? I think from my reading of the original sources is they they saw those two as the general exceptions. And the way they interpreted those two passages was the narrow um, view of either adultery, which is too narrow, obviously, in my view, what pornea means, but adultery and then abandonment by an unbeliever. But when we look at their practice, they were compassionate in general. And so if somebody was experiencing malicious dealings and cruelty, as they described it, unbearable conditions, as Luther described it, uh, they were open to consider that the Bible doesn't cover every possible situation by these two statements. So I would say if even the, those who signed on to the confession wrote of other exceptions, then we shouldn't take what it says as so narrow that it excludes every contingency. That's how I would explain the writers of the confession. And I think the last question that I have for you, to put you on the spot a little bit, is you know that we have so many people in uh, different sorts of churches where pastors deal with different sorts of situations. And sometimes these gals, I mean, I I could go on and on about the things that I've heard. So... Uh, I mean, I have literally heard that a gal who was being abused was told, well, you just need to be an example of Christ to him and continue on in that situation and the Lord will use you. I have literally heard from a Nay Park church that a woman who was being abused was told, your husband is repentant, return and she returned. The abuse began again two week, or three days later, and she was put under church discipline. And I, I have to tell you, I am at a loss at even how to encourage these women. Would you have any sort of encouragement for people that are in these situations? I would say as Christians in the New Covenant and our relationship with God, we answer to God himself ultimately. And you do what's right. And you do what's what you think is right. Um, with obviously the general truths of the word. But, um, you know, don't let anyone tell you to put yourself in danger. Um, find out there are other views. And, and then choose the one that you think is accurate. Follow your conscience on it. And if others don't like it, or if they, you know... If they say something against it, it's it's you and God ultimately, and if, especially if you're protecting your children. But you know, going back to the the repentance thing, the biggest mistake pastors make is they don't trust the spouse who's being abused. In other words, a husband will say, "I've repented," and instead of asking the spouse and learning from her, they think they know more than the spouse. And that's what brings it, these dangerous situations because they think they're smarter than the spouse who is the only one who really knows the heart of her husband and or the heart of the wife. So I would say to these women, um, 
Uh, don't let, you know, just like the confession says, don't let the laws of men and the consciences of others dictate what you do. You are free to follow the Lord in the way you think right, as long as you, you don't see it as clearly against the word. So maybe seeing these scriptures in a little different light will open up some doors, but you are free to follow your conscience on these things. Thank you so much, Todd. That was so helpful. This whole entire episode, so great. And everything that you've shared with us, I know it's going to be such an encouragement to so many people. Well, I appreciate that. And let me just say, I've sent you my paper. It's my dissertation. And and you can make that available when this comes out, if anyone wants to. Because I go into a lot of detail, especially the history of divorce in the church, if that would be helpful to anyone. Yeah, and I would encourage our listeners to check that out. We're going to put that in the episode notes. So this was just really a brief summary of the work that Ted, that Todd has done on this topic. So check that out and read more in detail on this. I just want to add real quick that it, you know, it is a dissertation, but it is very accessible. It's not hard to understand. It's not, um, you know, just scholarly talk. It is, it is something that um, any lay woman or, or lay man in the church would be able to understand. Yeah, I agree with that. So, and oh, let me, I forgot to even mention this in the beginning. You can also hear Todd on the Glory Cloud podcast. They go through a lot of the works of Meredith Klein, but it's worth listening to. I'm also going to link in the episode notes an episode of the Glory Cloud podcast that they did on the same topic. There was different emphasis on that episode, so it's worth listening to. So definitely check out Glory Cloud podcast. So thank you so much for joining us for this episode, and we'll see you next week. Oh, thanks for having me.